The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Welcome to this month's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we discuss OLED TV, 3D and its presentation, whether on TV or on projection systems. And we also talk about HDMI distribution. And back after eight months on the podcast, uh, this month we have Neil Davidson from Genesis Technologies. Hi, Neil. Hi, Phil. We have Graham Goodburn. Hi, Graham. Hi, Phil. And AV Forums reviewer Steve Withers. Hi, Steve. Hello, Phil. And it's going to be a feature-packed podcast this month because uh, we haven't be- really been around for the last eight months, guys, and uh, a lot has happened in the world of AV in that time. We've had uh, a couple of big shows. We've had Bristol and CES at the beginning of the year, and then the big Syria show uh, was last month. Uh, so, Neil, from your side of things, how has the year progressed and, and what's looking good for you? Well, it's been an interesting year, Phil. Um, it's it certainly started off challenging I think for everybody in the consumer electronics industry and whilst that hasn't completely gone away I think we're starting to see some signs of recovery now. Um, It certainly hasn't been a year of massive innovation, Um, there's not been too many new products released and certainly nothing new in terms of you know wow technology. Um, It's been a year I think where people have consolidated and just made incremental improvements and of course, the the one big thing that everyone is talking about is 3D. Um, it was around before, but now it's starting to get a bit more into the mainstream. So uh, that's an interesting one, and I think we'll continue to see a lot of that over the next six to 12 months. It's an interesting point that you raise it there, Neil, about people consolidating. One of the big buzzwords last year was OLED, O-L-L-E-D. It seems to have died off, Graham. Well, it hasn't, it hasn't. Um, it's still there in all its glory. They just can't make it cheap enough yet to um, test the water. And, of course, the uh, current economic climate didn't really help. So um, they just held on to it for a bit longer, I think. Um, I'm not even sure you can get that little Sony one anymore either. They seem to have pulled that for the time being. But, um, well, we'll just have to wait and see. LG one that Phil reviewed, didn't you? Was that a proper OLED yeah, TV? Yeah. What size? Fifteen. 15. Oh, all right. No, no, nothing, nothing to write home about yet. Then. <laughs> no. It's no. Just, just a point on OLED as well. Um, there are certainly still challenges. It seems in the manufacturing. I don't know if any of you guys have seen, but quite a number of the mobile phone companies uh, are actually ditching their AM OLED screens um, and going for LCD again simply because they can't get their hands on the screens themselves. Um, so there's a real shortage even at that small size, never mind, uh, well, for serious sizes for using in the home. So I think there's still a way to go with that technology. Yeah, which is a shame. Uh, as we mentioned there, I reviewed the, the 15-inch LG, and in terms of picture quality, yes, it is a small size of screen, but it just oozes quality. It's it's something that I'm certainly desperate to see on, on a larger screen. But, Graham, do you think the the way that the current climate is that that's kind of put the back burner on the technology in terms of maybe the companies aren't putting the R&D budgets in uh, at this moment in time? 
I think exactly so. Um, they're concentrating on the stuff they can sell to keep their heads above water. Um, you know, they've got to turn a profit, and um, you know, the easiest way to do that is to churn out forty-two inch and fifty-inch LCD screens like there's no tomorrow. Um, make sure the price is keen, and uh, hopefully, the buying public will um, latch onto them and uh, kickstart the whole industry again for screens. Um, anybody that's been selling screens recently has found it quite hard work, I would have thought, because um, judging from the amount of repairs that we see for screens that are like 10 odd years old, um, people are just getting them repaired and they're not buying new ones. Um, so uh, it is a fairly slow trek back to people buying out, going out and buying new screens and a 50 inch LED screen um, well if someone could make one who would buy it at this moment in time who has the money um, you know, we just have to wait that little bit longer I would have thought another 18 months before we see something sensible sensible money I'm not even quite sure why you'd buy a 15 inch screen which is probably why there ain't that many about one of the things that I, I pick up on the forums on a regular basis Steve and uh, obviously we discussed it last podcast out was um, the quality of screens that are coming through at this moment in time and there seems to be this consensus, I'm not sure whether it's true or not, uh, but certainly the forum members are quite strong in their views that since Pioneer disappeared from the market, in terms of quality when it comes to screens isn't quite there. Now you've seen as many screens as I have this year, what's your thoughts on that? Um, Yeah I'd have to say there's some truth to that Phil to be honest, I mean even the Panasonic which was now being you know sort of lauded as being the replacement for the Kuro, didn't really live up to expectations, in my opinion. I mean, there's been a couple of attempts. I think I think the LG have had a good a good crack at trying to produce a decent screen, and obviously Panasonic have. But uh, really, uh, really, there's still um, there's always you know they always get something good, and then there's some kind of offsetting problem. <laughs> there's never they're never going to get everything perfect um, in the way that, that the Kuro is. You know, whenever I watch um, something on my Kuro, I always think, God, that looks good. Uh, I never really think that on anything else. Oh, uh, you haven't got a Fujitsu though, have you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I've Steve, seen. Steve, no, Steve's quite right though. Um, if there is a really good screen out at the moment, it seems to be well hidden in the noise. You don't hear someone shouting from the rooftops like they would do a 58 series Fujitsu or the outgoing last of the uh, Pioneers. Um, you know, everybody knew what the model number was and everybody wanted one and normally bought one. Uh, at the moment, you don't see any particular model sticking its head and shoulders above. Um, I must admit, I looked at a couple of LG screens recently that were knocking around in a warehouse and they seem to have an awful lot of stuff built into them now that largely goes unnoticed because nobody's making a song and dance about it like they would with the old well, 58 yeah. series or the Kuros. Quality isn't what sells your TV, is it? It's all the bells and whistles and stuff that people in the marketing department can push to the customers. Um, you know, it's, it's not that this is an accurate television that isn't going to sell it. It's got this has got 600 hertz or this has got whatever, you know, four primary colors. Oh, yes, with Mr. Sulu doing the advertising. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, that, I mean, that, that, you know, unfortunately, in, for the manufacturers and particularly for their marketing departments, you know, quality and image accuracy isn't um, a priority. Yeah, the thing is, though, is um, people that I meet regularly that are having screens repaired, it's because they've wandered down to your local John Lewis or even Marks and Sparks these days and uh, had a look at the tellies and come away 
completely underwhelmed and said, oh, bugger it, I'll spend three, four, five hundred quid getting my existing one fixed because the pitch is just as good. That surprised me to some extent because I expected at least the latest uh, Panasonics to be something worth uh, shouting about. But um, and they're not bad, but they're not. there's no huge step forward that people can get all excited about anymore, which is a great shame, really. I, th- I think, Grim, I think the problem is that that they're made to a price point these days. It seems everything's made to a price point these days. Um, the Panasonics are great. The V20, the VT20, really, really good TVs, but they have inherent flaws in the technology. Um, they have inherent flaws within them, that which just points to the fact that either the technology's been rushed or it's been made to a price point. TVs were always made to a price point, Phil. It's just um, that price point was just a tad higher, so everybody could actually do something nice and sexy in the in the screen and not, um, you know, go broke in the process. But of course, um, several manufacturers did make nice, sexy TVs and did go broke in the process. So, um, you know, building them down to a price is the sort of thing only the likes of Samsung, LG, and Panasonic can do, because they have that huge backing of a, a massive company behind them that can keep them afloat and weather storms and the fact that they've not chosen to make a kick-ass tv at you know 1500 quid or two grand um is disappointing because there's still a market for a really good tv it's just that you know if we carry on much longer the great public are just going to think well all tvs look like a, a matsui 32 inch lcd and if they don't like that, they just won't bother to look any further afield, which is sort of self-defeating, really. That's a that's an interesting point, Graham. And Steve, obviously, you know, there was a lot of anticipation with the new Panasonics. When, when we saw them at CES back in January, the demo model that they had there, it was, in my opinion, a, a Pioneer panel that they were using because I, I, I own one and I looked at that one and I could, I could tell just with the, the PWM noise that was in there the black levels, the way it was doing things, it looked like a Kuro. Yet the screens that we then saw released and which we've reviewed are, are quite different from what we saw at CES. So this anticipation, which obviously we caused a little bit of, <laughs> um, obviously now that we've we've seen these, we've reviewed them, what's your thoughts on, on how Panasonic have gone ahead with this technology? Well, um, you know, they've clearly tried to produce a display that is the equal of, if not better, than, than the Kuro. And that was obviously their intention from the beginning. Um, fortunately, and in some respects, you know, it is a great display. It's a good set. You know, the, the, the out-of-the-box performance is very good. Calibrated performance is excellent. You know, grayscale, color accuracy, all very good, excellent. Exactly what you want from a display. Black levels are, are very impressive, too. Um, perhaps not quite as good as the Kuro, but certainly the best of any TV you're going to be able to actually buy other than going on the second-hand market. Um, so, you know, good job there too. But then they go and, um, I don't know, they they've seem to have dropped the ball in some other areas. Uh, one of the, Obviously, the, one of the big problems that you're going to read about on the forums and, and I mentioned in, in my 65 interview is uh, is a problem with 50 hertz. You know, and this is, you know, the, the, the predominant viewing format for people in the UK, particularly if you're watching PAL DVDs or Freeview, and Sky is going to be 50 hertz, and there's a problem with it, frankly. Um, now, 124p and and 60 hertz, it looks fantastic, but there is a, a definitely some kind of issue with the way it processes 50 hertz. And you know, so you've got to think, well, what happened there? Because <laughs> um, that's pretty pretty big problem. 
Um, and then other, other other small niggling issues, things like, you know, the fact it doesn't detect cadence properly, which is a fact something that applies to all Panasonic displays. Seems like, you know, they should fix that. Um, and it's a shame because in other areas, like 3D, for example, I thought it was absolutely superb. I really, and because it was a very large display that I was reviewing, for the first time, really enjoyed and got into watching 3D material because it filled your field of view. So it was like going to the movies, watching the 3D movies that I had well, it was great fun playing 3D games. It was really good fun. Um, and, and that was definitely enhanced by the sheer size of the display. But you, you just felt like, you know, that Panasonic ha had promised to deliver something and kind of fumbled it at the last hurdle. Graham, you, your... you come from a, a plasma background. Um, what light can you shed on, on the issues that forum members and our reviewers have highlighted there? It would appear for all the world that Panasonic have just carried on with their own processing chipset, which everybody knew was not as good as what was fitted to Fujitsu's or Pioneer. And as they have, the Fujitsu engineers and the Pioneer engineers, or the cream of them, or the pick of them even, um, I find it mildly disappointing that um, they didn't bother to use that technology because Pioneers and Fujitsu seem to do 50 hertz without too much issue. Um, and Every other both, team you know, to do 50 hertz without any issue. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just staggering, really, that um, Panasonic could be that, um, well, I, mean, I can't put words in their mouth, but it does seem like they was just being you know, bizarrely um, indifferent about uh, a European sailed or European um, spec TV. I mean, it's not just the UK, it's the whole of Europe, for God's sake, you know. Um, I just, it's just beggar's belief, really. But then if it's built down to a price to that point and they thought, oh, we just put out a new model because it's four months since we put out another new model, um, you know, someone really needs their arse kicked. Now, just to add some uh, balance to this, when I reviewed the 50-inch uh, VT20, I didn't notice any issue with the 50 hertz. And looking on the forums, there are also quite a few members out there who also can't see any issues with it and don't have any issues with it. So it, it, could it be a, a quality control issue on the production line? Or you know, why would it be seen on some and not on others? Any ideas? Mm, that's a very good question because they should all really have the same main digital board in them with just yeah. different firmware to attack whichever size panel it's now to. Um, if it was inherent in a in a 65-inch and they use the same uh, electronic processing in the 50-inch, it should be inherent in there. Or maybe it's small enough not to notice so much. Um you can get away with all sorts on a 32-inch set. And it's only when you start getting bigger and bigger that they've got nowhere to hide. Yeah, definitely the size makes any 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 error really obvious. So, I mean, that would probably be a factor, I suspect. But I can't believe that the processing is any different from one TV to the next. No, I mean, they no, they no. wouldn't do that. In, in the same model range, it's basically the same circuit board with yeah. just different firmware depending on what it's got to drive. Um, most of that's even the logic board that comes attached to the panel. So, you know, main digitals are, are normally the same. They only make them specific so people don't go swapping them around and, um, you know, causing chaos that way. But uh, oh, it's just um, it's disappointing. That's, that's a polite way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is this point. 
So we've approached uh, Panasonic and uh, we've told them about the issues that we've seen with the 65. There are issues with some of the 50s out there. Some people are not seeing any issues. So if we get anything back um, from Panasonic, we'll raise it in a future podcast. So let's move things along a little bit. And Neil, it's not been a, a great year for innovation, but I guess the big hot potato at the moment is 3D. So uh, from your point of view, eight months on from our last podcast discussion on the technology, how do you see things at the moment? Well, it's it's still a difficult one, Phil. Um, we've seen that the technology has matured somewhat. Of course, we now have uh, players. Um, we even have some projectors. There's quite a few flat panels um, that are supporting 3D. But there's still a lot of confusion um, around the hardware um, and how people can actually go about getting 3D in the home. And I think there's still a lot of confusion, apparently, um, from the movie studios and the content producers on how to get the best out of 3D. Um, and I think it's it's at a critical moment. If it's going to really be a success, um, they need to start getting more good content out there. Um, if it's going to be a complete failure, well, they just need to keep going with some of the weird eye-popping stuff that you get to see. Um, because the weird eye-popping stuff, it's all fun for 10 minutes, but you don't really need that in your home, to be honest with you. So, yeah, I think it's it's still much the same where we were like last time we spoke about it eight months ago. Very interesting, but still still a grey area where it's a, a must-have or uh, a must-succeed product. Obviously, we've had, I think it's about four or five TVs through now that are 3D capable. Um, Steve, the biggest problem is content. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've reviewed two now. There's the Samsung uh, C8000 and then most recently the, the Panasonic BT20. And um, when I did the Samsung review, my biggest problem was I just had nothing, you know, hardly anything in 3D to actually watch um, one film, basically, uh, Monsters vs. Aliens. Now, <laughs> um, the, with the Panasonic, at least, I had three movies. I had Coraline, Monsters vs. Aliens, and uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And in fact, hadn't even seen Kind of a Chance of Meatballs before. So that was going to have a chance to actually watch a film I'd never seen in 3D. And I found it to be a thoroughly enjoyable experience. I think um, the other probably the factor is that, as I said earlier, um, the size of the screen, I think, made a big difference. You know, you really uh, filled your field of view. So the 3D effects were great. And they weren't too in your face. They were subtle effects, um, which just enhanced the viewing experience. Um, also, um, the problem with the, with the Samsung was that there was quite a bit of crosstalk, which I think put me off. Whereas there wasn't, so, you know, that wasn't much of, much of a problem with the Panasonic. So, yeah, I found uh, 3D to be quite a pleasurable experience second time round, more so than the first. But yeah, content is definitely key, uh, and there's there isn't anything. I mean, I'm, between the, Phil and I, we've got all four films that you can own uh, currently, or not even own because you can't buy some of them. You have to get them from the manufacturer. But yeah, there's Coraline, Ice Age, Three, um, Monsters vs. Aliens, and uh, and Cloudy with Chance Meatballs, and that's it at the moment as far as 3D Blu-rays go. Grim, this seems to be the the crux of the matter here. It's 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 all right selling this technology, and it's in the shops now. People can go and demo it. People can buy it, and putting Sky to one side for the moment, in terms of the highest quality side of things, which is Blu-ray, it seems to be odd that there's just no content coming through at the moment. Yeah, it was um, extremely frustrating personally, um, having set up the first 3D projector in Europe that was sold to a client. And he says, what can I watch? Um, you know, Sky 3D aside and, it, and their um, preview reel. Um, 
unless you, I mean, even buying a Samsung Blu-ray player in the UK did not guarantee you to get a copy of Monsters and Aliens, which um, was staggering. Um, you know, a Samsung 3D player without a copy of Monsters and Aliens seemed to be for sale everywhere in the UK. And, you know, we literally had to beg, steal and borrow um, content from dealers all over Europe that we knew to actually give the guy something to watch to prove that it actually worked. Um, you know, um, they went off down to Harrods and said, right, we want every 3D movie you've got because these guys, you know, I mean, they're, they're spending 80 or £1,000 on a projector. So they've got a few, Bob, and just said, I just want to buy them. And they came back with a load of 3D movies that just had the red and green glasses inside them. <laughs> you know, which, and you, you go, no, guys, you know, but uh, apart from, like I say, the copy we stole of Monsters and Aliens, which you can't actually buy, that's that's the staggering bit. I mean, I don't know what sort of deal Samsung film. did with them, but, um, you know, uh, not being able to buy that in, you know, a decent high street shop um, isn't helping. Um, like you say, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, I think is the only one yeah, that's gone yeah. on sale that you can actually buy off the shelf. Yeah. So, so Graham, you're admitting there to stealing, uh, are you, from Harrods? <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, I know the guys that work there. And, he uh, does have an after-hours pass in his wallet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I'll tell you, when you see the when you see the Harrods staff go out at 8 o'clock, mate, it's always worth watching. <laughs> so an out-of-hours pass is worth its weight in gold. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, seriously. I mean, if you if you didn't know people and you didn't um, plead insanity, um, the chances of you getting hold of a three D Blu Ray are quite small, um, and that's not helping. I mean, uh, getting slightly across the Sky HD three D thing, um, you know, several calls to various people in Sky that you know um gets um the review showreel altered slightly to actually have something worth watching. And um they regularly show that rugby football uh, the rugby match. Um and that works. Um, you know, especially when it's on a four meter wide screen. You can't it can't help but be impressive. But uh, personally, I thought the best example was the um, 3D showreel that Disney uh giving out to, to the chosen few. Because um, not only does that um, dumb down the explanation of different glasses and how 3D technology is taken off, all right, Timon and Pumbaa probably aren't the best people to use for that, but it did come across for the average punter as very easy to understand, which was um, the plus point of the whole thing and watching to clips from Sto toy story 3 and 3d was um well you just couldn't help but be impressed but like you say um if these discs are not available in the likes of hmvs and harrods and places like that um i'm not really too sure um, where people think they're going to go with it yeah it seems to be uh the killer point uh, some interesting news broke today which uh i'll bring into this discovery channel have uh, just received a 3d license from ofcom which should be quite interesting if they uh, launch a channel. There's no news on that, but they have uh, just been granted that license. And Sky launches on October the 1st. So do you think that that's going to be the staple diet to, to take 3D into next year, Graham? Um, yeah. Well, uh, having something watchable that's normal is um, the the ultimate thing. Why it's taken them so long to work that out, I, wouldn't, I, I just can't fathom. Um, you know, Sky, you know, they made you 
actually tell them what screen you had and the serial number before they would turn on the 3D element of your HD box. Unless you're a reviewer. Yeah. You know, uh, well, <laughs> um, uh, we just rang up and said, look, you know, we've got this huge, great, 80 or 1,000 pound projector. And they said, well, it's not on our list. And we said, well, honestly, it really does exist. You know? And it Nvidia said the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on, guys. It's the only 3D projector you can buy. So <laughs> it can't be that difficult to find out. And we actually got the manufacturer to ring them. And they met with, well, we don't know who you are, sort of thing. And I thought, God's sake, you know. If you turn on the 3D um, channel and you haven't got a 3D set, it's not that great to watch. So what's the problem? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're just watching two images side by side if you haven't got a 3D TV set. <laughs> exactly. So. I mean, you know, beggars belief, you know. But, um, there, there is uh, one other source of content, of course, which is video games. Absolutely. That's going to be absolutely key to 3D success or failure, in my opinion. Well, because uh, video I, I, games in 3D are definitely fun. Uh, although I mean, obviously there still isn't much content, but I've got Avatar, and then the Sony 3D pack that they released a couple of weeks ago, which has got Wipeout the 3D, um, a demo of Motorstorm, and uh, a game called Pain, which I haven't even played yet, and one which was kind of an Asteroids game, which was really good fun in 3D and really worked um, and really enhanced the whole experience because um, it was a simple game, and the idea of you just flying around the outside of a planet, so you've got your big 3D globe in the middle, it really worked and and, and it was quite clever. And clever use of the 3D technology. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's clever use of the 3D technology that's always been my ultimate aim to see instead of everybody always throwing, you know, in Michael Caine fashion, stop throwing those bloody spears at me, you know. Um, there's a lot more to 3D than that. Um, a lot of people actually found the Sky logo quite impressive when it came out in between the reviews. No, on a big, on a big screen, that is quite nice. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, nice yeah. And, and you sit there and, like, all the little bits of um, dust and stuff that are flying around in the rugby match, people were actually, you could see people raising their hands to try and touch it because they felt it was in the room. All that sort of stuff makes for a great viewing experience. Um, well, I think there's still a bit of work to do on the sports with Sky. Um, I, I've seen it now on the big screen at the digital projection. And because it's such a big screen, you can really see all the artefacts that are in it and the loss of resolution. Um, and that's something that I think they need to find the way to combat, um, certainly for a larger screen experience. It has some weird artifacts and stuff like that in it. But I also think that that is where channels like Discovery have a real advantage because um, obviously don't have such fast motion in nature documentaries. And Graham and I have both seen from, from the demo content that we have that these... Um, let's say natural world type programs can really come to life with the use of 3D and not many people have just had the opportunity to see that because Absolutely. it's been all whiz-bang games um, everything is all whiz-bang to try and get the customer within that two minutes um, and that's where I think they really well <laughs> mature or die guys I think that's the, the, the situation at this minute in time. Now Neil we're, we're mentioning screen sizes here so the, what do you think about the, the 3D TVs that are on the market at the moment? Are people getting a, a, a good experience for that or, or should they be looking towards projection? And I'm going to make this a two-part question, so you're going to talk for a bit. Uh, the second part is, how difficult is it for the mainstream projector manufacturers to add the technology in and do you see that happening in the next 12 months? So, um, 
I haven't seen that many 3D TVs. So let's say by that, I mean 42 inch and below. Um, but the ones I have seen, the, the problem is by the time you get close enough for the 3D to become convincing, the natural artifacts of the technologies are starting to be so prevalent as to become really annoying. Um, so I think for me, um, projection is really the future of it. Um, moving on to the second part of your question, though, uh, the biggest challenge that the mainstream manufacturers have to overcome is, in fact, it's not really the video processing part of it, because I'm sure some clever people are going to come out with integrated chipsets now that uh, the spec has kind of settled down. Um, the, the problem is light output. It's simply very, very hard to get the required light output and simultaneously maintain any form of colour accuracy. Now, again, I have the benefit that I've tried this a lot of times, and people may think I'm crazy, but for me, if you're going to do a screen of about 100 inch wide, 16 by 9, and you're going to view 3D on that, you better have 4,000 lumens in your projector because of the amount of light that you lose from, first of all, the glasses, and secondly, the processing that needs to take place, double or triple flash, to get the 3D image to have any sort of smoothness to it. Again, you must remember that that's, that's blank time. You lose light during that, that time period. Um, and it can be as much as 80% of the overall light through the glasses, through the video processing, etc., that gets lost. Now, I don't know of many companies that can produce that amount of light, never mind produce that amount of light and maintain colour accuracies. Um, for a lot of the technologies, trying to put that amount of light through them would be, be damaging, in fact, to the chips themselves. Um, so that's a big, 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 big problem. So I wonder if what you will see as a result of that is the American phenomenon of so-called high-power, very high-gain screens might in fact be a way that you see these companies um, trying to combat the, the fact that they simply cannot put the high level of light that you require through their projectors. And of course, Neil, you touched on it there, one of the the minus points of trying to get extra light and so on is, is keeping your colour accuracy, is keeping your colour balance. And that's something as well, Steve, which we've seen with the review TVs. I mean, there, there is no standard set down for, for 3D playback on TVs or, or on projectors at this moment in time. So, Neil, how, do we, how does the, the end user combat that? Or, or is it just a case of, well, you're just going to have to stick it in standard or dynamic mode to get enough brightness from the screen and just hope that the colour balance at least looks natural? Well, I mean, you've got two options. So... Um... For for those of us as calibrators, it is possible um, to do a calibration through the glasses, um, but you need to have a device that has a small enough uh, spot size and can synchronise with the shutters to do that. And then it is possible to get good colour accuracy. Um, all of the glasses all have slightly different spectral characteristics. So unfortunately, there's no, no one-size-fits-all correction that you can do. Um, for the glasses, that would be very nice if you could do so. Um, but from an end user's point of view, I think it is difficult. And truthfully, I think it is up to companies like Samsung, like Panasonic, who are 
who are quite effectively pushing package deals with their displays. Now, we have seen um, through various pressures from, from forums and stuff like that over the last few years, much improved presets from these companies um, that have got pretty good colour accuracy in them, THX modes and all that type of stuff. And I think, I think that they need to start looking at how they can do that with 3D as well. Um, the challenge, as you've already hinted there, Phil, is that right now um, they will be entirely unwilling to do that because the loss of light will be too great for them um, to combine the colour accuracy with uh, the brightness for the 3D. So it's a bit of a catch-22 situation for all of the consumer companies right now, uh, not just projection, but also the flat panels. And is this... Uh, where bodies like Semti, EBU and so on is this the the point where they should really be um, and who's the other one, 3D consortium at home is this mm-hmm. the time that they should be stepping up to the plate and actually coming up with some specifications that manufacturers could follow uh, I think it is something that, that would be very useful, now it's important to remember that in fact there are specifications because uh, truthfully nothing changed in the colour accuracy specifications for 3D material over 2D material. So there's no difference to the calibration. It's just that you need to take the glasses into account. Um, for me, the the biggest the biggest problem is that for purely commercial reasons, um, the the Simte and I think the DCI standards uh, call for four foot Lamberts in commercial cinema for 3D. Yeah. Now. It's very clear why that standard exists. It's simply because to to get a projector, a digital projection device that can produce 12 foot Lamberts of perceived light output when you're losing 80% of that light to other processes, <laughs> it's just simply, it's mind-boggling the, the, the setup that you would need to have. And if you're kitting out a multiplex, the last thing you want to have is is double or triple stacks uh, of projectors in your your 12 screens so that that is a big problem now th- i think that that's such a problem and it, it worries me and it annoys me because there are so many times you will speak to people who've been to see well avatar everyone's been to see avatar as we know and for many of our friends and stuff like that i'm sure who are perhaps not as keen on the av hobby as as we are and i'm sure the people listening are it's always avatar as one that they come up with now, Avatar has one of the best pictures of any film, I think, that I've ever seen. Um, but if you see it in 3D, running at about you know, four or three foot Lamberts, it's as flat as a pancake. It's, it looks, it's a mess. Oh, it looks absolutely terrible. But if you take that same exact content and you can turn up the, the, the amount of light that you have, you turn up the brightness as we've been able to do in our demos, because, well, we're using 10,000 lumens on 100-inch screens. Uh, so, you know, you're not short of light there. And, and you get back up to the normal standard of 12 or 14-foot Lamberts, but with the glasses on, it's just it's a different film altogether. The, the experience is different altogether. And, and it's very difficult to, to correlate those two different issues. Um, the first issue is that to get convincing 3D, you need to have sufficient light output. 
but to get sufficient light output, the device is sufficiently complex as to be very expensive. Now, that's, it's the almost impossible situation in the consumer market. They need to be as cheap as possible, but how can they be as cheap as possible and have as high light output as possible? It's very, very difficult. And for, for me, that's the biggest nut that needs to be cracked just now, along with the content itself. No, it's an interesting point that, and obviously we're talking about projection there, but Neil, if we move it on to TVs, obviously TVs, uh, whether it's a plasma or whether it's an LCD, they can give that extra light output uh, just because of the devices there and the size that they are. So is it actually better to, at this moment in time, to be watching 3D content, in your opinion, on a TV rather than a projector because of the inherent issues? Well, again, see, you, you now get back into the, the trade-offs. Um, the problem with watching it on a, a typical flat panel, so I'm excluding the 85 and the 100 inches here because they're not normal products. Um, so let's say up to about a 50 inch, even a 65 inch, which is perhaps the grey area. Um, by the time you get close enough to the display for it to become extremely convincing for 3D, you're only about one 1.2 screen widths away from that screen. And on a plasma, you start to see all the PWM noise, all that type of stuff. And on an LCD, you start to see smearing, etc. Now, the other thing with 3D is that 3D requires extremely fast screen updates. Um, so plasma has an inherent advantage there, as we all know, over LCD. Um, and the LCD, I don't know if you guys have seen any LCD 3D TVs yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would have expected that you would have noticed somewhat more artifacts, cross-talk, cross-talk loads of crosstalk, yeah, yep, um, and ghosting and stuff like that. And yep. it's it's related to the response time of the panels relative to the refresh rate that needs to happen for that picture to be produced convincingly. Um, so again, you simply have to say to yourself, well, but <laughs> what is the least annoying artifact? for me to accept in this 3D viewing. And the only way that you can get around that is to simply have a whole ton of money to throw at the problem because that's the only way that you can afford to buy a device of any type. So that's flat panel, that's projector, it doesn't matter, that combines the light output, the video processing, the resolution, and uh, the response time to, to minimize the artifacts. Now, for me... On a, on a small flat panel, so again, below 50 inches, the combination of, of inherent artifacts in the TV, so it's not to say it's a bad TV, that's just inherent technological artifacts, combined with the difficulty in filling your peripheral vision, to me that rules that out as a, as a viable experience for, for movie viewing. Um, it's, it's like a second display almost for gaming and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, then, of course, you, you move on to the other problem of light output and the projection. That makes sense to everybody that's sitting uh, around this round table at the moment discussing this. Uh, we're all AV enthusiasts, but Graham, uh, the general public's just not going to give us stuff, are they? Um, is it? Oh, God, you know I've asked a good question, don't you? If people want it, they're going to buy it anyway. Um, happy in the knowledge that they haven't been told that it's not bright enough. And they accept it for what it is. Everybody comes around and sees it, and they're all perfectly happy. Um, it's only when people like myself, Neil, and several others try to specify this stuff to a client that wants 
good performance and he's expecting it to look like the demo he has seen and we're victims of our own success there where you know you're using very powerful dual lamp models and you're setting them up so 2d is the right level and when you switch to 3d it all happens seamlessly and you fire up the second lamp and you get the brightness um of course then they they wander off and see other demos and then become underwhelmed and come back to us and say okay where have yours because yours is the only one that looks looks good now the more people that do that and the more people they show will mean more clients will go along to the likes of harrods and um the better hi-fi stores and look at these 65 inch tellies and say yeah it's all well and good but it's not as bright as i need it now you you can only draw overdrive a panel in a plasma tv so much um uh, after that it all gets a bit it all gets a bit iffy um you know um as to whether they give us stuff or not um that very much depends on how much they are and how likely they are to want to replace it in three years time or whatever um we do see tvs now as more or less a throwaway item at some of the prices they get punted out at um not quite sure what, how good that is for the environment but uh, that aside um you know if they're going to make a 3d tv that's 42 inch that's a thousand quid um you know loads of people are going to buy it um if they become underwhelmed with it um, 3D technology sort of goes on the back burner because, you know, if people are underwhelmed, they don't they don't buy them, and if they're not buying them, people you know, manufacturers are not going to make them, and it dies a death um, because of ineptitude on the on the you know the way it's been put forward. I'll always you know say this is how to do it properly. And that's how much it costs. And, and uh, you know, if they're not prepared to do it, then, you know, you've got to ask yourself, well, do you come down in specifications so you can get the sale and um, eat, you know, put food on the table for your kids? Or do you stick to your guns um, and try to defend the 3D technology and uh, improve it? Um, I have a feeling it's going to be the former. People are going to, you know... Um, say okay you can't have that so have this and um buy it and be happy doesn't sit easy with me though one one of the the comeback questions that some of the enthusiasts some of our listeners out there are going to come back with so i'll ask the question uh, neil uh, we were talking about projection against tvs and so on uh, now some punters out there they're going to go to the, the cinema they're going to notice that it's not as bright in the cinema uh, but then when they go and look at a plasma or an lcd uh, even with the glasses on, they're going to they're going to notice the the difference in the brightness. It's going to look far bright. It's going to look more vibrant. And of course, we're AV enthusiasts, and we're looking for the best picture quality possible. But is it is it possible to have a good three D experience, in your opinion, um, from the the kit that's available now, whether that's an eighty thousand pound projector or a thousand pound TV? Yes, but it's uh, you have to know the content, and you've got to get the best content. Um, we're at the stage where we are quite literally once a week taking content to people. <laughs> so mm. that that that's that's where 3D is at at this minute in time. So I mean that there are technical issues in there, Steve. Uh, we've seen some of those with the review TVs that we've had through. Um, but overall, now that you've had a, a good crack at the 3D whip, as it were, um, I'll give my opinions in a, in a few minutes. But first of all. What's your thoughts so far on what you've seen um, with the stuff that you've had through for review and how do you see it going in the next 12 months? 
Well, like I said earlier, um, I think having a 65-inch screen definitely made the 3D experience much better uh, because it did fill my field of view more. And the Panasonic didn't suffer from crosstalk because it was a plasma, which the um, Samsung review did quite badly, in fact. Um, so, so definitely, and also, uh, as Niels mentioned, I was acutely aware of how much brighter it was than when I'd seen similar films at the cinema. Where, you know, I mean, uh, and I think Neil's right, the content is going to be so key going forward. And what worries me is that Hollywood's got it into its head after Avatar that 3D is the way forward to make tons of money. And they're taking 2D movies and converting them into 3D films. <laughs> and anyone who's seen Clash of Titans know that it was awful. I actually watched most of that film with the glasses off because the 3D was so bad. But even worse than that, they converted The Last Airbender, no, no, last, no laughing at the name of that film, um, into 3D. And that was a very, I mean, despite the fact I can't stand the director anyway, um, M. Night Shyamalan, whatever his name is, um, it's a very dark film. And in the cinema, people were saying in the States, they literally couldn't see anything. So they've got to be really careful. They don't, and also, you know, the way you shoot 3D, you don't move the camera as much, you don't have quick whip pans, you don't have so many fast cuts. They've got to be really careful. They don't kill the golden goose here by putting out, just taking 2D product and converting it to 3D and thinking that's going to make them tons of money. Because if the film looks terrible and people can't see anything and they're getting a headache and they're taking their glasses off, it's counterproductive. So Yes, exactly uh, my point, yeah. So you need, they, they need to you know, produce good quality 3D content, you know, which enhances the experience rather than A, loving things at your eyes or B, just taking 2D stuff and converting it into 3D, which they're doing on a lot of films now. Which is very uh, absolutely. Well, it, mm. it always looks uh, terrible. It looks awful. I mean, Tasha Titans was just, I just bought the Blu-ray to watch the film again because I didn't see the film the first time. I mean, it just was unwatchable. It looked like someone, I think I said this on the last podcast, it looked like someone was standing directly behind them the whole time, like a separate head. It was just bizarre. <laughs> I can't believe people, I paid money to see that. It was awful, really awful. And that kind of stuff could kill 3D dead if they're not careful. And of course, um, one of the sales points at the moment with uh, the C750, which I have for review at the moment from Samsung, is the 2D to 3D conversion, yeah. <laughs> which has built in. Um, I've got to say it's entertaining, and it's entertaining for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes it works. Sometimes you'll, you'll get a scene that's a static scene, and you think, yeah, actually, that does look quite good and then it just ruins it completely ruins it as soon as it cuts to another scene i mean um, it's impressive it can actually do that at all in real time but yeah, yeah i mean when you actually watch the, the results it, it's laughable most of the time it's just it's a gimmick that you play with for 10 minutes you get bored of and then you never use again what well, is exactly the point we were making eight months ago really yeah um it's all about content and it's all about filling your field of view and it's all about something you actually want to see um Avatar at the time was the thing that everybody wanted to see because it was made for 3D specifically and it largely works. Rubbish story but um, you know it, there was no doubt in the quality of the actual film itself. It was really impressive. Yeah technically um, superb wasn't it? Yeah and Toy Story 3 I mean the clips I've seen uh, you think to yourself oh my word you know it really was very very good indeed. Um, and the natural world stuff, yeah, um, done properly because you're not fast panning, um, you're thinking about it. It's a lot of, you know, relatively static shots and things like that. And that works absolutely brilliantly. Um, you know, going back to last November when we did a big 3D demo down in Leicester Square, 
everybody but everybody all of a sudden got 3D when they saw that natural world clip. Yeah. 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 And the the beach female beach volleyball and the Panasonic demo disc. (laughs) (laughs) Was it eye popping? (laughs) (laughs) Something else popping, I would have thought. (laughs) But but in answer to your original question, Phil, um, in terms of, you know, I I certainly found my experiences with a larger screen to to really enhance my 3D experience. And as I've mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, I think 3D games could be the key. Uh, see what comes up. I, mean, I think Gran Turismo is coming out in 3D quite soon. So, I mean, that kind of stuff could really drive it. Um, certainly on smaller smaller displays, 3D gamers when you're sat quite close to the screen and it yep, makes it something exactly. more immersive. It's a, a relatively unnatural thing anyway, playing a video game. So you're not worried about wearing the glasses. Um, whereas watching normal TV, I think most people, certainly anyone I've talked to, you know, a lay person who's not, uh, you know, not the kind of person that listens to these podcasts or goes on to AV forums, but your average person in the street. As soon as you say wearing glasses, they immediately lose interest. They just think, oh, I've got to wear glasses? I don't want to do that. And you know, it's going to be a hard sell for 3D to get past that kind of um, resistance. Well, you see, that's interesting because it was completely opposite at Bristol. Um, I, I'm not sure if, if you guys are aware, but we had the, the LG um, passive TV on our stand. And I was amazed at a number of people that came up, put the glasses on and actually enjoyed the experience. Because I thought there was, especially among Stevie enthusiasts, I th- and certainly I was the same. I was very much on the fence with this. It's, I, I wasn't convinced, and I thought the majority of people would be like that as well. But it, at the Bristol show, everybody that came up to the stand, whether they were sceptical or, or or whether they were enthusiastic, everybody thought the experience was good. Yeah, to be fair though, Phil, I don't class someone who goes to an AV show as being an average punter in the street. I think they, they have an inherent interest, otherwise they wouldn't be there. Um, you know, I talk to somebody, females, you know, friends at work, and and say, you know, I talk about I talk about reviewing the TV, and as soon as I mention the glasses bit, they always assume there are no glasses involved. All 3D, brilliant, and they say, you know, you have to wear glasses like at the cinema, and they go, oh really? Oh, no, not interested. Yeah, and it just those turn to switch off at that point. Yeah, I, I, yeah, completely agree with your point there. And I guess the point I was trying to make was that you had a far more sceptical crowd at the Bristol show, yeah. yet they were won over. Um, how, how have you guys found it with your demos? Um, I would say that most people like it. Um, well, more than like it, but we tend to do fairly impressive setups when we put on a demo. Um, but it's a much different question when you say now will you specify that for your customers and the most common answer is well wait another six months and for me it's the content that they're saying that for okay it's all nice that your eyes have been crossed over and popped out and whatever else (laughs) Uh, but if you're going to sit down and watch that for a couple of hours then it simply can't do that because you'll go blind in three minutes yeah Okay, well, I guess we can wrap this section of the podcast up uh, regarding 3D TVs as, well, certainly from my point of view, I'm going to go with Neil on this and say that content is king and we're not even close to getting enough yet. Graham? Yeah, I'd agree with that 100%. And Steve, what's your views? Yeah, totally, totally agree with that, Phil. Okay, we'll be back in about 20 seconds. 
For up-to-the-minute AV discussion and hardware reviews, visit avforums.com. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. And welcome back. And to wrap up this month's podcast, well, we got the custom installation, guys. Here we're going to talk about HDMI, the evil that is HDMI. Uh, Graham, some interesting news there that maybe you can tell us about. Well, yes, um, the HDMI organisation um, sent um, quite a bullish email round to every cable manufacturer and everything else saying what you can't put on your cables now. Um, like you may not use the HDMI 1.4 or HDMI 1.4 compliant or even supports HDMI 1.4, its features, or its super Ethernet channel, or compliant to HDMI with deep color, all those things are banned. Um, one may ask why. Um, well, you suppose you could say it's confusing the, the customer into thinking that all of a sudden all their existing HDMI kit wasn't going to work suddenly, and they needed to rush out and buy loads of stuff. And of course, some manufacturers were making... Um, Great shake saying, oh, our stuff's 1.4 compliant and don't buy anything that's only 1.3 compliant and stuff like that, which was clearly all relatively horse what's it um, because lots of stuff will just continue to carry on working regardless. Um, they gave very specific things that you could say um, and, uh, you know, I don't think that helped organise it into some sort of sensible informative guide for the end user anything more than all the stuff that went before um the highly disappointing multimedia interface continues to astound everybody um the only thing that i've really noticed now is that an awful lot of custom installers and dealers are being actively asked to install HDMI distribution in their projects as opposed to good old component video which always worked. Um, two parts to that, um, the consumer thinks they need HDMI for everything and HD component video as an output on a source isn't likely to be around for much longer because um, they've uh, effectively put a stop to that as well from the end of the year. So get HDMI distribution that works properly ignore all the numbers and pick something that will actually transfer HDMI, HDMI, multi-channel audio, 3D. Um, lots of people forget that because um, uh, there's no point putting in a massive HDMI distribution system for your client to turn around and say, oh, by the way, I've bought some Samsung 3D sets because they were good value in John Lewis. I can just plug them in, can't I? Um, which is exactly what happened in one install and the guy... The, the installer completely had a head fit because um, all the stuff he, he had specified and luckily hadn't put in didn't do 3D. So, you know, he came along to a few people that would give him some straightforward advice and say, well, fit this because it's the only thing we know that works. It staggers me sometimes, but I suppose it's a, an attempt at uh, making things rather more transparent to the end user and stop frightening them. But, yeah. Uh, HDMI is frightening enough as it is without additional scare tactics I suppose totally and and Neil I'm going to turn to you for this one we're going to put our cynical hats on for a second the use of the 1.3, 1.3a, 1.4, 1.4a it did nothing but confuse the consumer in terms of 
especially with the 3D thing, um, being told that they had to have 1.4, where the bandwidth doesn't change. So there's no difference. And, and we've been reviewing 3D TVs and using 1.3 cables, and the flag's been going through no problem. And So we're going from that to a situation now where the HDMI cable will have no information on it, such as what specification it'll work to. So how do you sell an HDMI cable to a punter? Well, f- first of all, um, I have to say for me, it's it's mind-bending that an industry could come up with a connector that is so vital to the communication <laughs> of all devices and then continually revises the specification um, and comes up with features that are not backwards compatible. I just cannot believe that. But anyway, accepting that that is the reality of the situation, um, what what the HDMI uh, licensing authority now expect uh, the manufacturers to do is to print on all packaging and all marketing materials the exact features that that cable or that switching product or whatever it is will support. Now, okay, that might help to alleviate some forms of confusion because you're not going back and looking to see which specification A, B, or C is being supported. But now you suddenly expect, you know, Joe Blogs to understand the purpose of the audio return channel in his brand new HDMI, or why he want might, uh, might want to have the Ethernet channel, and why that completely changes the choices that he has to make. Um, I mean, we work in the custom install industry, Graham and I, and experienced custom installers, when you speak to them, they simply have no clue. They have no clue what they have to do to make this stuff work. Exactly as you said, they say, well, what am I going to do? I need to get HDMI 1.4 in because my customer says he wants 3D in his home. And it's like, well, no, you don't. But no one is, is there to offer the education. And it's not just education for the consumers. It's education for the professionals in our industry as well. And it's a really, for me, extremely serious and difficult situation. And the HDMI licensing authority should hang their heads in shame that they've brought us to this situation because it just doesn't help anybody. So that's my personal opinion on it. I think it's a travesty. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, Neil Graham, Steve, it it doesn't help that, and I'm not going to name any manufacturers here, but... Let's just look at the, the recent AV receiver launches from all the majors. <laughs> yes. Every, every one of them says you need this receiver to work with 3D. Um, now, it's my experience, I don't know about you guys, but as long as you have a, an AV receiver with video switching that works to at least 1.3 and it's on pass-through, then 3D works fine with it. Um, have you guys found the same things? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So it has to work properly as a pass through though. That's where things fall down. Yeah. There's pass through and then there's true pass through. Yeah. But uh, technically the manufacturers have up until this point and and I suppose I can see the angle where the the HDMI licensing's coming in here. Manufacturers have used it as a sales tool, haven't they? Yeah, they so it's just shocking it's, it's disingenuous marketing of of shocking proportions because it's playing on consumer ignorance rather than offering features that the consumer really needs to have. 
Doesn't that apply to just about everything in the AV industry these days? Well, yeah, that could be argued as well, of course. <laughs> Allegedly. But, you know, it's, um, it was interesting that I did a, a design plan for a dealer to get two skyboxes to six TVs um, with 30-meter runs and stuff like that. And I drew it all out and said, this is what you want. And he says, why am I buying this? I said, because I tested it and it worked. And he, said, and he asked all the questions. Oh, what do I tell the client? Just tell him it works. Now, that's all the client wants. Will it break? No. Does it work? Yes. Does it switch nicely? Yes. Um, is there any issues? No. And the dealer sort of went, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, how can I not mention 1.4? Can I put that on a drawing and stuff like that? I said, no. So because he's just going to ask, why are some bits labelled 1.4 and some bits labelled 1.3? Just say to him, whatever you put in at one end will come out the other end. And he emailed at half past eight this morning and said, do you know what? This is the first time I've ever plugged something in. It just worked. <laughs> and he it, 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 it was quite staggered. And he says, right, that's me sorted then. I'm just going to do this. And his client was just, you know, thoroughly impressed because he'd done his, he'd done his homework and looked up HDMI distribution. And basically most people give up because it don't work. But yeah, it, it can. It's not rocket science if you, if you plan it carefully. Um, so I don't give a monkey's what's on the stuff. If I plug it in and I'll get something, uh, if I get all the stuff I, I can send down it out the other end, that's it as far as I'm concerned. That's the solution. So, and if you're going to warrant a system or something like this, um, you don't want the dealer ringing you up at 10 o'clock at night saying, oh, it's it's not working, can you come over and fix it? You know, it's just crazy. Yeah. So let's look at it from uh, our AV Forums members, listeners who are listening in. They're thinking, right, I want to put in HDMI distribution into my, my house. I'm looking at it at the moment. I want to run HDMI from uh, one room into, into another two. And and it's confusing me at the moment. So, guys, what advice would you give to people that are looking at HDMI distribution? What, what are the things that they need to think about and what are the things they should be looking at? Well, the first thing, absolutely, is to, to just clarify something on the cable. The only difference between, let, let's use the term, an HDMI 1.4 cable and an HDMI 1.3 cable is the Ethernet channel. Now, if you don't plan to use the Ethernet channel, then there is no worries about using your existing cables in that type of a setup. So that's, that's the first thing to address. Um, the, the second big issue that we often see um, is... If you're moving an HDMI signal from one room to another, you start to get into quite long cable lengths. Now, we all know that pretty much any HDMI cable up to a length of about, well, let's be generous, up to about 7.5 metres will work. Once you get over that distance, um, the, the, the quality of the cable starts to play a role. Now, I must stress, I'm not trying to tell people here to go out and spend thousands of pounds on HDMI cables, but just make sure that you have got something that is guaranteed to work at the length that you are purchasing. Um, and if it's 15 meters, 20 meters, that's very long cables. You need to think about having some form of active equalization um, on cables like that. Or look at using a Cat5 based solution with HDMI extender balance. Um, again, those solutions can work extremely well and very reliably 
Um, but you must make sure they have power at both ends to make them work properly. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, a, a huge a huge source of failures Graham laughing in the background um, there's two other big issues that we see day in day out when people are looking to distribute HDMI signals the first of those is EDID so that's the, the display uh, data exchange um, EDID causes problems because that's how the the displays report back to the source which resolution and which sound formats they support. Um, and if you don't have those matching, it's very, very common that you'll get one of two situations. The first situation is that uh, you get limited resolutions, typically 720p rather than 1080i or 1080p. Um, and that's because one of the TVs is incorrectly usually reporting that it only supports 720p. Um, the second problem that we see all the time, which is again related to EDID, is that if you plug in a TV in one room, 99% of the time that will only accept two-channel linear PCM audio. Now, if you also want to plug that same device, so a Blu-ray player, for example, into your cinema system with an AV receiver that supports multi-channel audio, you will be disappointed to find that it only outputs stereo and you're having to use like ProLogic or something like that to try and get multi-channel. Again, that's just that's an EDID problem rather than any sort of operating problem. But you see it time and time and time again. Oh, um, yes. There are, yep, there are devices on the market that let you control EDID um, and that is worth its weight in gold in getting an EDID. Uh, an HDMI distribution system working properly. Um, the other problem that you have is the more HDMI devices that you have connected, um, the more complexity that you have in how HDCP is handled. Now, there are a number of different schemes that you will see um, in handling HDCP. And if people want a general guide, because you can get an HDMI matrix with a 4x4 that costs 500 quid, let's say. You can get an HDMI matrix of 4x4 that costs 8,000 quid. Now, typically the biggest difference between those matrices is how they handle HDCP. Um, the one at 500 quid, what that does is it passes through the signal um, from the, the display to the source um, and vice versa. Now, what you get is you get slow switching speeds um, and possible unreliability. You then move up to a scheme where you have, uh, they call it pre-shared keys. Um, and in pre-shared keys, what happens is all of the displays are connected to the matrix, which then passes all of those keys through to all of the sources. So effectively, everything knows everything else that's connected to the matrix. Um, the problem that you have in a pre-shared key system is first of all, there are a lot of sources that simply don't support more than two keys. Um, if you try and give it more than two keys, it stops working. Um, that's something you see a lot. Two TVs are switched on and then a third TV gets switched on and everything blanks off. That's shared key problems. Um, the third way that you see of handling this is to have one-to-one 
HDCP keys. So really one connection from the display to the, the matrix switch or the switch or whatever it is, and then another connection from the switch to the actual source itself. And what that does is that allows much faster startup times, much faster switching, and it avoids problems with too many shared keys. Um, but of course what it requires is an HDCP key chip uh, on every port. So as you move up in the expense, what you hope to gain is more reliable operation, faster switching times, and less problems with shared keys, and obviously edit management. So there it is in a nutshell, HDMI distribution. Now, I mean, all this information that, that Neil and Graham have given us is uh, really worthwhile listening to. But, Neil, if you were to give um, a listener just some very basic pointers as to what they should be looking for with, with a distribution system, whether they're spending a couple hundred quid or going the full hog and, and doing it right, what advice would you give to them? Um, make sure that you uh, are confident that you know what you are doing. Um, if you are prepared to accept that every now and again you'll have to switch things off and on, then you can save yourself a few quid. If you are not prepared to accept that and it has to work every time, don't have a false expectation. Those types of systems simply cost a lot more money. Um, that's the biggest advice that you can get. Neil, another question which comes up on a regular basis on the forums when you're talking about uh, distributing HDMI is audio. Um, yep. <laughs> so what are the drawbacks with audio and, and what are the things that you can do to, to make sure that you're getting the, the, the proper codecs into the right uh, receiver or processor and so on? Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, 99% of the time, the problem is, is not to do with the actual switching equipment. Um, it's because you will have a, a, a flat panel display um, that's connected onto one part of the system, and it is saying, well, hey, I'm just a flat panel. I can't decode all of these fancy codecs. I'll just take two-channel linear PCM, please. Um, now, if you have no way of managing the EDID, what happens is that that gets fed back to the source, and the source looks back through all of the EDIDs it's received, and it says, okay, okay, that flat panel over there, it says, uh, yep, it says it's 1080p, uh, but I can see it's only... Uh, going to accept two-channel audio. So even though this super fancy AV receiver over here says that it wants all of these codecs, I am designed to make this system work uh, reliably. So I am going to output the two-channel audio, and that's that. Now, that's, that's what happens 99% of the time. There is only one way to fix that, and that is to have some form of edit management in front of the source, to, to isolate the source from the devices that are connected to it. So, especially for a switch, splitter, or matrix that has EDID management in it. Simple End of. Now, one little tip that I will share here, and uh, people can send me their contributions later. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have a laptop uh, or a PC that has an HDMI port on it, you can download free software that will let you read back the EDID from all of the devices that are connected up to your switch. Now, that is an incredibly useful thing to do. Now, I will share a little anecdote there. Um, of course, we sell 
products like those we have been talking about. Um, and as a result of that, I was with a dealer a couple of weeks ago in his brand new showroom with his brand new 1080p projector. And they were complaining that the stupid Apple TV kept outputting 720p no matter what they told it to do. So I used this little trick. We fired up my laptop and just plugged it in. And lo and behold, this brand new 1080p projector was reporting in its EDID that it only supported one resolution. That resolution was 1366 by 768. So in fact, it was the projector's fault that the Apple TV, the stupid Apple TV, was always outputting 720p. Because what it was doing was it was reading the EDID and saying, ah, okay, you're a 720p device, there you go. So um, it's incredible how many of these little problems you can solve just with that free piece of software on your PC to read back the EDID. And you can just compare the different devices and you'll see immediately where these things start to come in. And that piece of software is called? Uh, pass. <laughs> Air pass. So if you do a Google search for Air Pass. Um, Neil Davison says pass, yes. It's from the same company that made PowerStrip. Uh, it has the snappy title of Monitor Asset Manager, Phil, um, and it's from a company called Entech. Um, people can easily find that with a Google search. It's quite a common piece of software. And uh, we'll try and add a link into the uh, the podcast thread as well for people just to click on. Uh, we'll try and do that underneath this podcast. Um, so that kind of wraps up everything that we uh, have to talk about tonight. And we seem to have been going on quite a while. So we'll let you get back to your daily business. Uh, thanks very much for listening. I just need to thank Neil, Graham and Steve. Thanks very much, guys. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, Phil. Always a pleasure. If you have uh, any questions, queries or comments on what we've discussed tonight, you, then you can add them to the feedback thread underneath this podcast or you can email us at podcast at avforums.com. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.